Second Corinthians chapter nine, Paul writes. Now, concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. Yeah, Paul used words like superfluous. For I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect. That as I said, you may be ready. Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. As I indicated to you earlier, Paul continues the theme of gracious giving and the chapter that we've just begun to read begins with a review in verses one through five. It continues with a reminder in verses six through nine, and then it ends with a promise of reward at the, towards the end of the chapter in verses 10 through 14 where the giver is blessed by by both the Lord in verse 10 and then again in verse 13 and the benefactor or recipient of the gift in verse 11 and in verse 12 and in verse 14. And Paul will punctuate the chapter by reminding the reader of God's most magnificent gift, the standard whereby all gifts and giving are judged. And that's the gift of Jesus in verse 15. And we are strangely drawn in Paul's writings in an incredible way to the nature and the character of God. We know intuitively, we know instinctively, but we also know biblically that God is love because the revelation has been given to us. We know that God is love. We know that God is generous. And because we know that a loving and generous God calls us to love him and our neighbor, we come away with this sense that we know, we know, we know that love and generosity pleases the Lord. We also know that giving pleases the Lord. Yet now we discover that not every giver or every gift pleases the Lord. Not every giver is ready. Not every giver is eager. Not every giver is prepared to give. And so Paul draws our thoughts in a different direction. Have you ever thought about giving as a means of pleasing the Lord? What pleases God about giving? Apparently, it has something to do with what's going on inside of us, a, a, an eagerness to give, a willingness to give, a preparation to give. And so Paul is at a crossroads. Both Paul and the Corinthians are struggling. And guess what they're struggling with? They're struggling with what it means to keep a promise and what it means to accomplish a task. The promise and the task was to take up the offering and give to the struggling saints in Jerusalem. Paul has already indicated that this is a worthy goal. The promise that both the Macedonians and the Corinthians had made seemed to be a genuine promise. And we're sometimes overwhelmed by the promises we make and the projects that we want to accomplish because we live in a world where there seems to be a constant request to give, 
for this particular cause or for that particular purpose. We, and whether the promise is to pay down a debt or build a school or a church or a, a campus, we can become overwhelmed by the promises we make and the, and the projects that we want to work on. Because we want to be generous. And then sometimes we become overwhelmed when we look at all of the needs all around us. When we face a difficult task or a worthwhile project, we have to recruit willing participants. Let me ask you a question, and you don't have to answer it. I just want you to think to yourself for just a moment. Do you have a character flaw? Yeah, thank God you go. No, not me. I'm good. I do have a character flaw. And I think I'm willing to disclose it to you. Part of my character flaw is I find it difficult, almost impossible to ask for help. I think that there's two equal and opposite flaws. The person who never asks for help. And the person who always asks for help. And somewhere between the person who never asks for help and the person who always asks for help is that person who seems to show up on your doorstep and they always seem to need something. I heard the story of a man in Alabama who is really rather wealthy. And he was a go-to guy. And because of his wealth and because of his generosity, people were always coming to him and they were always asking for help. And there was one particular part of the neighborhood where there was an orphanage and there was a particularly impoverished church. And there was a black minister and he would come to this particular person and, and it was always a little bit of help here and a little bit of help there. And finally, the man became so frustrated. He says, guess what? I've run out of generosity and I've run out of help and I've run out of support. I don't think I have anything left to give. And the minister looked down. He was a little ashamed, a little embarrassed. And then he looked up and he said, I, I can understand how frustrating this is for you. I had a person in my life like that, he said. He said, I've spent most of my life in the mine. And I work and I do the best to take care of my family and my people. And there was a young boy in my life exactly like that. He would always be asking for a nickel or a dime or a quarter. He always needed shoes and he always seemed to need clothes and books. And he needed this and he needed that. And he needed help with school and he needed this and he needed that. But he don't ask me for anything no more. He said, it's my son. He died last month. And he never asks me for anything. And he said. And we don't have a whole lot. We have this orphanage. We have this church. But our doors are open. And our lights are on. And the bed is available. And I hate to say this. But the truth is. When we become a dead church and we close the doors and we turn off the lights and we have nothing to offer anyone ever again. Then you don't have anything to worry about because we'll never ask again. Somewhere between never asking and always asking our biblical principles of gracious giving in every great task, whether it's to pay down a debt or build a church or or fund a missions group, you have to have these four ingredients, active participants, 
clear objectives, strong enthusiasm, and the promise of reward. And when we face a difficult task or a worthwhile project, we have to recruit participants. And like I said, I don't like to ask people for help. But the truth is, we won't have a children's ministry and we won't have a ministry at all. Unless every single gifted person who is gifted in the body of Christ actually does what they're gifted to do. Giving should have clear objectives. It should be, what are we trying to accomplish? If we don't know where we're going, we won't have any idea how to get there. Clear goals, specific objectives are the signposts that we need in order to get to the final destination. And there has to be passion and enthusiasm because without it, people will lose interest and motivation. And there has to be a reward, tangible rewards Fuel the fire of determination that keeps us moving in a particular direction in order to accomplish a specific goal. And sometimes we need a leader. Someone who will motivate us. Someone who will encourage us. And someone who will reward us. And Paul, in this particular passage, is that leader. In chapter 8, he used the Macedonians as an example of faithfulness and generosity in order to motivate the people at Corinth. And now he wants to use the Corinthians as an example to motivate the Macedonians. And so he says this amazing thing about a readiness, a willingness, the ability to give in verses one and two. Look what it says now concerning the ministering to the saints. It is superfluous for me to write to you. We sometimes get stuck on words and you might be a person who's stuck right now. What in the world is superfluous? It means extra. It means not needed. It means unnecessary. Paul is in effect saying, do I really? Is it really? Are, are you really going to have me talk to you about the issue of whether or not it's a good and a noble idea to help the saints in Jerusalem? Remember where we started in chapter eight. He's basically appealing to them and saying, look, do I have to really tell you about this? And again, when people come up and they say, we need water for people to dig wells, we need um, children's workers, we need Sunday school help, we need this, we need that. You know, do I really need to tell you that in order to have the lights on, we have to pay the light bill in order to do this or in order to do that? Paul is in effect saying, look, I know that you know that you know. That it is a good and a noble objective to help the suffering saints in Jerusalem. He says in verse two, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago and your zeal has stirred up the majority. In the NIV, it says your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. It's like you get a group of people and you go, yes. Yes, let's make sure our children are taken care of. Yes, let's pay down the debt. Yes, let's make sure we fund missions. Yes, let's make sure that, that when missionaries come, that we'll have something to give them. Yes. Have you noticed that example can be inspiring or tragic? We can provoke people to love and good works, like it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. We can provoke them to guilt and shame. But remember, Paul isn't wanting to provoke people by guilt and shame. He wants to provoke them with the necessary ingredients that are already there. Willingness, zeal. I want you to pause for just a moment and I want you to ask yourself this question. Does Paul expect the Corinthians to give? Yeah, the answer is yes. Why does he expect them to give? Because the dear saints in Jerusalem need help. Next question. Do the Corinthians want to give? 
I think that the answer is yes. Why? Because the Corinthians were looking for opportunities to minister. They're looking for opportunities to cultivate a heart of generosity and joy. The Corinthians were committed to meeting the needs of the ministry. They were committed to identifying and meeting the needs of fellow believers. They understood and they identified with the needs of the suffering saints in Jerusalem. And so Paul reminds the Corinthians of just how proud he is of their love and of their generosity and the amazing impact that the Corinthians have had in that area. And then Paul lays out the ingredients or what I would call the equation, the right people with the right objectives in the right direction. And then you add a generous dose of enthusiasm and that equals an accomplished goal. So Paul gives the Corinthians the thumbs up. He's bragging about their enthusiasm to the Macedonians. Now, one of the things that I want you to get out of this is just a quick look at Paul's leadership style. He is encouraging. He is passionate. He is infectious. And by the way, when a person is... Encouraging and passionate and infectious. What does that do to you? You become passionate. You become encouraging, infectious. And so Paul writes about the preparation to give in verse three. He says, yet I yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready. Willingness and zeal has to be translated into action. So uh, imagine Paul, you know, Paul says, hey, guess what? The suffering saints in Jerusalem need our help. Yeah. Yeah. Let's help them. Let's help them. And somehow that passion and and that enthusiasm has to translate into action. But look what Paul does. Paul will send Titus and the two God-given servants that we talked about earlier. Remember the two God-given servants? Remember we talked about how transparency and accountability avoids misunderstanding because there needed to be integrity, accountability, and transparency. And, and and what is the word I'm looking for? Integrity, accountability, and transparency. That was the other one. And so he goes, look, Paul doesn't send these men. And this is what you have to understand. This is different from the world in which I grew up. When my dad would send a couple of guys over to, to motivate you to do something. It usually was to twist your arm. Paul isn't sending these people to twist their arm or to convince them that giving is a good thing. They need a little help. They need a little organization. They need a little administration. Paul's boasting is in their enthusiasm and zeal and generosity. Look what he says. Yet I've sent the brethren lest our boasting. What's the boasting? Hey, these guys are really enthusiastic. They're full of zeal. They're full of generosity. Pause. Could Paul as easily have put together a laundry list of the shortcomings, the faults, the failures of the Corinthian church? He really could have. Because guess what? It was a church with issues. But he doesn't focus on the issues. At this point, Paul wants to make sure that there's no embarrassment over a failed promise or a broken pledge. And by the way, because Paul wants to make sure that there's no embarrassment or over a failed promise or a, a broken pledge. And by the way, this is not the only reason or even the most important reason to keep your promise to avoid embarrassment. But the benefit that the gift is going to accomplish for the suffering ser- servants and the suffering saints in Jerusalem 
Now, I know that you would never, ever do this, but imagine you're the pastor of a church and someone writes you a check and the check bounces. What do you suppose I as the pastor should do? Is it my job to embarrass the person who has written the check? No, that's that's not my job. Because I always assume that the people who do that, they do it not because they're trying to pass a bad check to the church, but something has gone wrong. Something has happened. It's not beneficial for the pastor or the church to embarrass and humiliate people who are trying to be generous. And so I need you to understand something. That's exactly what's happening here. Paul isn't interested in embarrassing them, of bringing up their shortcomings. And so Paul writes, he says, affirmation and praise is meant to build them up. And almost always, I want you to understand, almost always, Paul is giving a word of encouragement. He's looking for reasons to build up the churches. Now, does Paul have some specific things that he says to the Corinthians, things that need to be corrected? Yeah. But you know what Paul never does? And I've done a careful reading of the New Testament. I've sort of devoted my whole life to this book called the Bible. Do you realize that Paul never, ever speaks badly about one church to another? He never tells the Macedonians the problems and the flaws of the Corinthians. And he never tells the flaws and the problems to the, of the Colossians or these particular people or those particular people. For whatever reason, Paul works from the premise that affirmation encouragement, looking for the good rather than the evil, looking for praise rather than criticism is the way to go forward. And so he says, even in verse four, lest if some Macedonians come with me, note, these are the people that he's been bragging to about the Corinthians, lest if some of the Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Again, what is Paul doing? Is he saying, please, please don't make me look bad, particularly after all of the incredible things that I've said about your integrity and generosity and zeal and enthusiasm. Pause for just a moment and ask yourself, before the invention of reverse psychology, is Paul using reverse psychology? Maybe. But what if I said to you, maybe not in this sense, Paul writes, I've told people, the Macedonians, you are generous, you are enthusiastic, you are gracious, you are benevolent, you are willing to give. How can I in good conscience tell them the reason That even though you're generous, enthusiastic, gracious, benevolent, and willing to give, that the truth is you never gave anything at all. In other words, why didn't we take up the collection? How is it that we started this project and we never completed the project? He's basically saying, can you imagine your embarrassment? Can you imagine my embarrassment? So he really is asking them the question, are you prepared to give? And if the Corinthians are going to act on the principle of preparation, guess what? They're not going to be prepared to give unless they're sensitive to the reality of the need. And they could not be sensitive unless they're sympathetic to their fellow Christians. And like I said, all of the ingredients are there. They really do care. They are sensitive. They are aware of the problem. Just like you. In the next few days, you're going to hear stories about fires that are burning out of control, which they are. You've heard stories about tornadoes in Oklahoma. We've dealt with inundations of floods in Louisiana. The truth, the truth, the truth. Are there going to be problems? 
Are there going to be issues? Are there going to be needs? Are there going to be difficulties that you become aware of and I become aware of? Yeah. Are we going to be able to give to every single thing? Probably not. Are we going to be able to give to something? I think that that's the right answer. It is yes. In other words, we're not simply overwhelmed by the reality of the so much pain and suffering, but that we go, Lord, we don't know everything about everything, but we do understand something. And that is that we're not going to build a wall of apathy or indifference or selfishness. We're never going to venture out of the four walls of our own immediate needs. Because here's what we've discovered. That if the only thing that we care about is ourself, we are going to become small and selfish. Is that the kind of church you want to be? Small and selfish. And so, I think what Paul is doing is cultivating a sense of sympathy and sensitivity that's going to channel usefulness and happiness Because selfishness does more than just wither the heart. It shrivels the soul. And there are two ways, by the way, to become wealthy. One is to make sure you have everything that you want. But there is another way. The other way is to be satisfied with what you have. Someone said, my grandma, if you want to be rich, give. If you want to be poor, grab. If you want abundance, scatter. Someone said that the man who lives by himself and for himself is almost certainly going to be corrupted by the company he keeps. George MacDonald wrote, No indulgence of passion destroys the spiritual nature so much as respectable selfishness. And so Paul writes, therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time. Now, the brethren that he's talking about are Titus and the other two people who were prepared to go ahead of Paul to help the Corinthians translate their generous intentions into reality. He says, therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Paul employs faith. I really believe That you want to be generous. But he also employs works. He trusts God. And then he goes. I'm also going to send people to help you. (laughs) Do we trust God? Yes. And again Paul is raising funds from the Corinthians. To give to the saints in Jerusalem. And Paul employs people to take the necessary steps to gather the money. And all of this is legitimate and all of this is necessary and all of this is proper. And again, Paul makes every effort to put the Corinthians in the best light possible. He says, look, I'm going to send these guys. They're going to help you prepare the generous gift, which you previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Paul Wants to shine a bright light in the direction. And I want you to think about, again, what you're reading. He sends Titus and the others to coordinate the collection so that when he and the Macedonians show up. He doesn't have to take up another collection. I had a person come and share at our church and I'll never do this ever again. I thought I was going to reach out in love and understanding to another church. And this person came to our church and he took up an offering and then he took up a second offering and then he took up a third offering. And I was completely ashamed and humiliated and disappointed 
because our church has never been a place where begathons take place. And I'm going to suggest to you again, Paul sends Titus and the others to coordinate the collection so that when Paul and the Macedonians show up, it isn't going to be like a TBN special. Where, guess what we're going to do for the next nine hours? I'm going to beg you for money. I'm going to shame and humiliate you until you give me exactly what I think that I need. Paul doesn't want to show up for a begathon. Does that shock you and surprise you that a pastor in a church is actually telling you what he's telling you right at this very moment? Again, read it for yourself. Paul isn't using psychological tricks. He's not using carnal vanity that demeans Christ and Christianity. And he certainly doesn't want to use the pulpit as a means of either psychological manipulation or extortion. And if the collection is made, when Paul shows up, here's part of the point that Paul is making. It may be that they didn't really want to give at all. So Paul is speaking of preparing the gift and acting on a previous promise, not for the purpose of embarrassing, humiliating or otherwise making people uncomfortable. And so look what he's he he writes in verse six, he says, but this I say He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You all know this illustration. It's from agriculture. The farmer sows bountifully, reaps bountifully. Again, think about what Paul has talked about. Number one, people have to be willing to participate in meeting the need. Number two, clear objectives have to be defined so that we can help out with the need. Number three, strong enthusiasm, encouragement, readiness, preparation, and now the promise of reward. In what sense? A return on the investment. What does this mean? Sow sparingly, reap sparingly. Let me help you. To sow bountifully meant to sow with a blessing. Again, remember what a farmer does. They take a little seed or they take a lot of seed. If you sow sparingly, you're going to have a limited crop. If you sow bountifully, you have a gigantic crop. But it means way more than that. To sow bountifully meant to sow with a blessing. You can imagine that to reap bountifully means to reap a blessing. So Paul is in effect explaining to the Corinthians that God will not be a debtor to any man. The God of the Bible is faithful and generous, faithful to bless when we're faithful to obey. So when it talks about bountifully, it means with the idea of blessing the Lord. It, the laws of nature become a picture of, the, of our life in Christ. Like I said, when the farmer sows in the spring, he reaps in the fall. What he sows, he reaps. If you sow corn, you reap corn. If you sow wheat, you reap wheat. What you plant, you harvest. And the proportion is based on little or the a proportion is based on much. The Christian may scatter Or may sow, but if he or she sows, it's intentional. It's not whimsical. It isn't, I'm just going to throw whatever is in there in the hope that that, um, I'm going to be prosperous. That's not the meaning of the text. Can we teach this verse to mean commercialize and materialize blessing? I don't think that's the point. It can't be the point. In the context, here's what Paul is saying. Paul isn't saying, if you give me a dollar, then God's going to give you a hundred dollars. Really? Is that what you see in this text? After everything that you've just read? I don't think that that's the point of the passage. There's a spirit in the gift. There's a motive in the gift. And the spirit and the motive is to produce joy and gratitude And a Christ-like character. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, it says, It is he that gives you power to get wealth. 
our seed of generosity sows thankfulness to God and others. I'm just going to give you a sneak peek. Verse 11 and 12, directing hearts toward God, glorifying God. Verse 13, a life that occupies God's grace and demonstrates God's grace is a rich harvest. And so whatever else Paul is talking about, is he talking about you should give so that you can get something? No. He's saying you should give because it's the nature of God and the nature of Christ. Because when you become a born again Christian, God gives you a heart, not of selfishness, but of generosity. Filled with grace and mercy and generosity. Many years ago, I sold advertising. When I was a lot younger, I had a little stint of a job between social services and the ministry I worked at a radio station. I was an on-air personality, and I sold air. Do you know how hard it is to sell air? You know, if you sell vacuum cleaners, you can pick up dirt. If you sell washcloths, you can wash your own face. Usually things have substance and value. Can you, you can look at it and you can say, do you want that or don't you? How do you sell air? How do you sell advertising? I remember I was trying to sell an ad to a person one day. And he goes, I already advertise in the newspaper. And I put $20 on top of the newspaper because he showed me the ad. And I closed the newspaper and I said, I'll let you keep that $20 if you can tell me the ad that's right next to your ad. And he goes, I can't. And then I said, complete the sentence. You deserve a break today. Yeah, McDonald's. Yeah. Where's the beef? Yeah, that was a long time ago. Because he was asking me, does advertising actually work? And I go, has it worked in your life? You see, advertising takes two forms. True and false. Effective and not effective. Is the scripture advertising? If you give to God a dollar, he's going to give you a hundred dollars. Now, I want you to just do the math for just a minute. That would mean that every person who promotes that idea, if they if somebody gives them a million dollars, they should give the million dollars away so that they can get a hundred million. And then they should give the hundred million away so that they can get a billion. But here's what I see them doing. They keep the money and they buy Learjets and houses and funny clothes and strange hair. This is probably the most abused and twisted and tortured passage in all of the scripture. The scripture isn't teaching that God will match you dollar for dollar or reward for reward. It isn't some gigantic give to get scheme. But it is something that's supposed to cultivate Generate, grow, repair, character. And so you're intentional in the gift. Look at verse 7. It says, let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Read it again. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. What an amazing passage. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Look what the passage says. God loves a cheerful giver. And so do I. God loves a cheerful giver, not a fearful giver. God looks at the heart. To see whether or not you give out of devotion or you give out of duty or you give out of discipline grudgingly. Ek, lupus, literally 
out of sorrow, lupus. Have you ever heard of the disease lupus? That's where that disease comes from. It's from a Greek root word, which means painful, sorrowful, pressure. God doesn't want people to give to him out of a sense of pain or sorrow or pressure. God isn't a beggar. Although we not might not believe that based on what you see on television or here on the radio. Remember what I said about the character flaw? It's not wrong to ask for help, particularly when you need help. And it's certainly not wrong to give help. We sing a song. My father is rich in houses and lands. He holdeth the wealth of the world in his hand. Of rubies and diamonds, of silver and gold, his coffers are full. He has riches untold. Question. Is there anything that you could possibly give God that he doesn't already have? I think that that's right. God doesn't want or need anything from us except for the most important thing. Your sin. You see, he's willing to actually take your sin and replace it with his righteousness. He's actually willing to take your sorrow and give you joy. He's actually willing to take your grief and give you comfort. He's willing to exchange your poverty for his generosity. It quite literally is impossible to give him anything. But Paul has already told them how much to give. I, I want you to think about this for a minute. In chapter 8, verses 12 through 15, he's already said, give in proportion to what they had. So what happens when a believer gives grudgingly or out of necessity? That means out of the sense of discipline. We miss the blessing and the point of giving. Giving has to come from the heart. And so if the meaning of the text means anything... It doesn't necessarily mean that God hates the obedient giver. The cheerful giver gives from the heart. The desire isn't manufactured by shame or guilt. Cheerful giving is never forced. The words grudgingly and under compulsion suggest that this is a person who would rather hold on to their possession, but they feel compelled to turn it loose. The cheerful giver says, you know what, I'm not doing this because I feel guilty or I feel compelled. I'm doing this not because it's been manufactured by outside influences, but because I genuinely, genuinely believe that God wants me to be generous. In the Old Testament, you'll remember that God told Moses to build the tabernacle, a place where people could experience the presence of God and experience his holiness. And God said, bring brass and skins and linens and gold. And they built the tabernacle, but it wasn't just the brass or the linen or the gold. It was their heart. The Lord told Moses, he said in Exodus chapter 25, verse 2, and then again in Exodus chapter 35, verses Five through nine, the Lord said to Moses, tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me from every man whose heart moves him. You shall raise my contribution. In other words, he said. I want people to do this, but only if they want to. And how did they respond? It's found in Exodus chapter 35, verse 20. It says, quote, then all the congregation of the sons of Israel departed from Moses presence and everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved inside of him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of the meeting for all of its service, for the holy garments, the Israelites, all the men, all the women whose heart moved on them to bring material for the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought a free will offering to the Lord. Does that sound like oxymoron to you? Which the Lord had commanded through Moses. You mean he commanded them to give? No. 
He commanded them to give because they wanted to. And only if they wanted to. And they gave. And they gave. And they gave. And they gave. And finally Moses said, Enough! Stop! Stop already! Time out! Stop it! We've got way more than we could possibly use. I can't wait to preach that sermon. Please stop. The mortgage is paid off. Please stop. Not only do we have more than we could possibly use, but we have so much that we can't even give it all away to all of the worthy causes that are taking place all around the globe. Does God love a cheerful giver? Yes. Does God ignore the person who gives out of obedience, I think we need to be careful. I'm not suggesting that a cheerful heart replaces an obedient heart. Does God ignore the faithful giver or the obedient giver? Or does he only reward, does he only love the cheerful giver? I'm going to suggest at least one thing to you. Paul isn't trying to split theological hairs. Do you know what Paul is really trying to do? What he's really trying to do is say, give the right gift with the right heart at the right time for the right reason. Years ago, the Reader's Digest wrote a story about the New Jersey Turnpike. They had a cash crisis because of the toll booth. They didn't have enough small change. So you know what they did in order to satisfy the problem? They went to the churches. They said, we know that you just took your Sunday. They go on Monday and they say, we know you just did your your Sunday offering and you've got all of these dimes and nickels and quarters. Will you exchange them for larger bills? The world knew That people gave their offering based on what they really believed about God and about salvation and about his people and about his work. Small change. So why does Paul take up this offering? Remember, it's for the poor saints in Jerusalem. How important was that project? Well, it's important enough that he's devoting two whole chapters to the subject. I think that that's pretty important. By the way, do you know how many churches take up offerings for the poor saints in Jerusalem? None. Hardly. Do you know how many congregations of Christians are in Jerusalem right at this very moment? Only a few. Because the truth is, the witness and the testimony of Jesus Christ in the city of Jerusalem is all but disappeared. Because the church has closed its doors. There is no church there. There's nothing to give to. There's no one there. There's a principle. A willingness in verses 1 through 5. There's a principle... The principle of harvest in verse 6. There's a principle of freedom and generosity in verse 7. Later, Paul's going to talk about the principle of grace in verses 8 through 10. And the, the principle of thanksgiving in verses 11 through 15. But when you think about all of these principles that he's going to be talking about, it's for a really specific reason. It's for character repair. It's to make sure that our hearts are right. Robert Robert Roddenberry wrote, quote, there are three kinds of giving, grudge giving, duty giving and thanksgiving. Grudge giving says, I hate it. Duty giving says, I ought to. Thanksgiving says, I want to. The first comes from constraint. 
The second comes from a sense of obligation. The third from a full heart. Nothing much is conveyed in grudge giving since the gift without the giver is bare. Something more happens in duty giving. But there's no song in it. Thanksgiving is an open gate with the love of God. I remember when I saw that quote because it made me think of a passage of scripture in Job chapter 35, verse 10. You know, the Bible talks a lot about God giving. And one of the things that it talks about in Job chapter 35, verse 10, who gives songs. Has God given you a song to sing? Has God given you a song to sing about your mental, your emotional, your spiritual, your financial condition? There's a principle. We need to be prepared. We need to be sensitive. We need to be willing. We need to be open. And God promises to change our heart. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, we know that there's going to be wonderful opportunities in the not too distant future. That, Lord, you're going to move upon our hearts with sensitivity and compassion. Lord, we're going to see a person or a need. And, Lord, you're going to speak to our hearts. And, Heavenly Father, again, I pray, I pray, I pray. That as we explore this scripture. Not for the purpose of raising money. Not for the purpose of paying down debt. Not for the purpose of funding missions. Not for the purpose of giving the staff a salary increase. But for the purpose of trying to understand your heart and our own. An opportunity to examine our heart and wonder if there's some character flaw, if there's something missing. And Lord, to give you an opportunity to repair the condition for people like me, Lord, who don't like to ask for anything. And for people like, well, like other people. Lord, we pray that you would move on our hearts. That you would change our hearts. That you would mature our hearts. In Jesus name. Amen.